All right, church family, how are you today? All right, good, 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 good. Well, uh, we are finishing up our ladies series. Ladies, have you guys enjoyed this being directed solely to you? Come on, come on, come on, anybody? All right. Ladies, it's been five, it's been six years we've never done a ladies series. You're going to have to give me better than that, right? If we're going to do another ladies only series, you're going to have to work on that little uh, enthusiasm there. We are finishing up our series today. And before I invite my wife, my awesome, beautiful wife, up to help us finish out today's series, I just want to say and remind you, last week I said I was going to reveal Easter. Anybody remember saying that? It's going to reveal what we're going to do for Easter. Let me just set this up. Every year that we've been in existence, we have just put all our eggs, no pun intended, all our eggs in that basket. And the reason is, is that Easter is like the Super Bowl for churches. It is, it is the experience when, when people who might be really far from God or near to God, whether they've been in church or out of church, people are showing up on Easter. And so we've always just gone out, all out as a church. We've, we've rented out the River Center. You guys remember that? That was awesome. It was a lot of fun. But this year, we're going we're gonna to do something better than ever. But before I tell you about that, I want you to watch last year's video. In fact, many of you guys might have been here, and we found out in the survey that we took that 54% of you that were with us on that Sunday, we found out that 54% of our church was not church prior to being a part of my church. Now, that to me is just pretty much unheard of in the church world today. We also found out that 45% of you shared that you had given your life to Christ and made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life in our church. 45%, that's crazy. One of the reasons we feel like this church has been so successful and helping so many people find their way back to God is because of Easter. Last Easter, we had... 150 plus of you and your friends that you invited come to Easter and find Christ, find a relationship with Jesus. And so this year, even though every year when we do something outdoors, the weather threatens, the weather really threatened last year, the year before that when we were at the amphitheater in Phoenix City, the weather really threatened before then, even though the weather is threatened. We are still going to be outdoors this year. All right, so let me tell you this. For the second year in a row, we're going to be on our new church property. But let me just say this. If you thought last year was good or that you thought it was really disorganized, it's going to be tremendous this year. We are going to light a fire in UR Church over the next four weeks, and we're going to light up Easter like never before. All right, so get ready, get prepared on Easter. We're going to be on our church property, and we're going to do this up larger than life. It will be incredible, all right? So just tuck that away, get ready, be prepared as we get ready in the next four weeks. Right now, I want you guys to welcome my awesome wife, Christy, as we finish up our Brave series. Um, I wanted to start by saying thank you. I didn't really seriously, I wanted to say thank you to all of our men. You have been true gentlemen this month. 
allowing us to celebrate our women. Thank you so much for helping us celebrate your ladies and celebrate the unique way that God has gifted us as women. We appreciate that. And ladies, I hope you realize how rare it is to be in a church where we have strong male leadership. It is more common than not that the backbone of the church is the women. They're the ones who show up and do everything and pray and organize stuff. And at this church, we are blessed to have strong male leaderships. Not everybody's perfect, but we have men who are trying to be the spiritual leaders of their family. And they're, it's contagious. They're helping other men do it. And it's attractional. And so men, we celebrate you and we thank Thank you for being such gentlemen during this series. Now, this is the last week. We've been looking at women in the Bible who have taken some steps that required extreme bravery. Today, we're going to actually look at two women, and we're going to compare and contrast them. And I'm going to ask you ladies for one week. We've gotten to be emotional this month and all of that. It was Valentine's month. Um, I'm going to ask you today to think like a man as best as you can. Okay, I want you to try your best. They're so good at compartmentalizing the information and just looking objectively at the words. Okay, because we're going to compare these two women and I don't want you thinking who had what and who looked like what and whose situation was worse. I just want us to like objectively look at the words if that is possible. Okay, we're going to look at um, 2 Kings chapter 4. And if you have a Bible or you have a smart device, if you have a choice, I would love for you to look at these stories in the New King James Version. It's the NKJV. Um, and let me explain this. Somebody was asking us before the service, like, why are there so many different versions? I got that Bible app on my phone, and for a while I couldn't understand it. It wasn't making sense. And then somebody showed me there's a button in the right-hand corner. If you touch that button, then you get all these choices and all these abbreviations. It's kind of like the military. All these abbreviations you don't understand pop up. Um, the reason is this. Back in the 60s and 70s, the decades in which Jeff and I came to life. Um, he made it just barely the summer of 69. But in the 60s and 70s, there were some businessmen who had a Bible study. And they were so excited about learning God's Word. And they tried to take it back to their buddies at work. And their buddies at work were like, dude, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this is like old archaic language. Like, tell, explain this to me. And so these businessmen did some research, and they found out that the, the Bible that our parents and grandparents grew up on, the King James Version, was written at a 12th grade reading level. And 60% of Americans, myself included, read at a 6th grade reading level. So we were eliminating 60% of the population couldn't even really understand the scriptures. And so what they did is they pulled together hundreds of Bible scholars and spent seven years going back to the original language and retranslating word for word into our common language. They also got to use a lot of the new um, things that had been uncovered in the Holy Land that now we understood more about the Bible and we could, um, we could update it. It wasn't changing the original text. So if you've ever been confused, like, I thought the Bible was the only infallible word of God. Why are there all these different ways that I can read it? This morning I'm going to ask you to read with me, if you have a choice, in the New King James Version just because I love the exact wording there. If you don't have that, don't worry about it. It's going to be on the screen behind us. Will you pray with me before we begin? And then we're going to look at these two ladies. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. 
We thank you for your word, for the way that you've preserved it, God, for centuries, miraculously. And then, God, you cared so much, you put it in the heart of some men to put it in language that was easier for us to understand. Thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of technology where it's so easily accessible to us. And, God, this morning as we look at it, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, open our eyes to see what you want us to see, and open our ears to hear what you want us to hear. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, while you're finding 2 Kings chapter 4, I want to share with you a verse that kind of will frame and lay a foundation for what we're going to talk about today. In Proverbs 18, 21, it says that the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, ladies, let's be honest. Who loves to talk more than us? We love to talk, don't we? It has been said that we actually use three times as many words a day than a man does. Now, most men say that is because we have to repeat it twice. (laughs) But three times as many, that's a lot of life or a lot of death coming out of this mouth. So it's important that we get it right. Jeff and I, a couple weeks back, we realized, good night, we were struggling in this area because um, we're in that like 90 to nothing phase with our kids. Nobody drives, but nobody needs a nap. And we have one that starts at 4.30 in the morning and goes to swim practice. We had one doing the Springer, and she got done at like 10.30 at night, and we were tired. (laughs) We're in our 40s now, and we found ourselves saying all the time, God, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And the way we knew we were saying it all the time is because our nine-year-old started saying, I'm so tired. We're like, you're nine. You don't get tired for about 30 years, okay? <laughs> so Jeff and I made this little pack behind the scenes. We decided, okay, when we're so tired, instead of always having that come out of our mouth, that negative, I'm so tired, I'm so tired, we would say instead our code phrase was going to be, it's going to be a great day. <laughs> so, so instead we started going, it's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great day today. And you know what happened? Our nine-year-old started saying, it's going to be a great day all the time. There is power in our words, the power of life or the power of death. And ladies, we are passing it on three times as much as anybody else. Let's look at the story. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1, it says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets called out to Elisha. Elisha was the prophet, the man of God. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came and we all had equal access to God, you heard from God through God's prophet or man or priest. And at this time, it was Elisha. So this woman goes to Elisha and she says, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared God and the creditor's coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Now, we don't know her whole story. We don't know if her husband was lousy at keeping the budget or if she was lousy at spending too much money. We don't know whose fault it was that she's in debt. Again, I'm asking you to look at this objectively, okay? I can't begin to imagine the pain of losing a husband. I'm just asking you to not think emotionally about her story. Let's just look at her words. She says, my husband is dead. And Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she says, your maidservant has nothing. Oh, except I have this jar of oil. Now, it wasn't a jar of oil like we have at our house, the olive oil, the EVOO that you cook with. 
Her jar of oil, the word there means the jar of anointing oil. It was a symbol. It was what they used when they were really stressed and they really needed a miracle from God. They would, when they prayed, they would anoint somebody with that oil when they were begging God to come through and provide. It was also something they would use to anoint prophets with or kings with as a sign that someday a coming Messiah would come and deliver us. So she says, I have nothing in my house. Oh, yeah, except that thing that's supposed to remind me that God provides and will deliver me someday. And he says to her, all right, I want you to take the oil that you have. I want you to go borrow some containers from your neighbors, borrow some jars, some vessels from your neighbors. And I want you to pour that oil into all of the vessels, borrow a lot of them. Go home and shut your door. And, and pour this stuff out. And so she goes back to her house, she shuts the door, and she begins to pour the oil into the different jars. And miraculously, God provides. The symbol rings true. And the oil never runs out until she gets to the very last jar, the very last vessel. And in verse 6, it says, Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another A miracle has just happened, all right? All these jars that were empty are now full. And she says, bring me another. And he said to her, there is not another. So the oil ceased, and then she went to the man of God and told him, the oil has stopped, the jars are all, we're out of jars. And he says, go sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. Now, objectively, let's just look at her words. My husband is dead. I have nothing. Bring me another. All right? Just forget about her pain for a minute. Now, I'd like to point out that in spite of her words, God still provides for her in his grace and takes care of her. But if you just look at her words on paper, my husband's dead. I have nothing. Bring me another. Now let's look at the second woman. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, it's a town, where there was a notable, or some versions say a great woman. I think the intention is, ladies, take notice. This woman is worth noting. And she persuades Elisha to eat some food. Not too hard. He's a single guy. She has homemade baklava. He's up for a free meal. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look, I know this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make an upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him in there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be that whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. Now I want you to notice her words. Three times she says, let us, let us, let us. I don't know for certain, but it appears so far that in their home, this Shunammite woman appears to be the one who's a little bit more spiritually in tune. She's the one noticing the man of God, inviting him to her house. I mean, women, you're gifted at, you anticipate needs before people know they need something, all right? So maybe it was just her gift as a woman. But 
perhaps she was the one who was a little further along in her spiritual journey. And if that is so, or if that is true in your home, notice her language. She says please to him. She doesn't bulldoze him. She asks him and invites him into her journey and says, let us do this together. Had a friend several years ago. Her name was Tracy, and she was a bulldog. She was part Spanish, and boy, she didn't take no for an answer on anything, all right? She was one of these women, you were like, no, I'm not hungry. Oh, yes, you are. You're going to eat more. She was um, just a fun fire plug of a woman, and Tracy, in her story, she was the first to come to Christ, and she said, Christy, you know, I used to wake up on Sunday morning, and I was getting the kids ready, and I was so mad at my husband. He was laying in bed, and he wouldn't come to church with me. She goes, I used to stand at the foot of his bed, and I would curse like a sailor at that man. You lazy, good-for-nothing, get your fat butt out of the... She goes, I would just lay into him. And of course, he would never come to church with me. She goes, one day it dawned on me, maybe, just maybe, I ought to change my approach. And so she said, for about six months, I didn't say a word, not a word to him. And then one Sunday morning, I got up, I brought him his favorite breakfast in bed, and then I asked him a question. I said, would you please take the kids and I to church? She said, you know what happened? He hopped right out of bed, got dressed, came to church. (laughs) And he eventually came to Christ, and guess what? He eventually became the spiritual leader of their family. Ladies, our words have the power of life or death in them. A gentle, respectful approach that gives life and not death is how we change the hearts of people around us. And so Elisha keeps coming back, and one day he says... Look, this woman has helped us so much. She's been so concerned for us with all of this care. He says, what can I do for you? Notice that this is the same question he asked the first woman. Tell me what I can do for you. He says, do you want me to go to the king on your behalf or the commander of the army? Is there anything you want? I'll ask for it for you. And here's her response. She answers, I dwell among my own people or I'm content. I have family and my tribe around me. I'm content. I read that and I'm like, you're kidding me. You don't have a wish list on Amazon? I mean, on any given day, if you're going by Target and you call me, I have a list of 15 to 20 items that I want, a running list. And here this woman has a a heart of contentment. When he says, do you want me to go to the king? Do you want me to go to the court? It's as if she says, you know what? I don't belong among the king or the court or the palace people. I'm content here. I have everything I need. And the servant speaks up and he says, well, she doesn't have a son and her husband is old. And Elisha says to her, call her, call her in here. And he says to the woman, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Now, she never asked for it. Her only response is this. She says, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. As if to say, I'm content. I'm not asking for anything. And Elisha, if we're going to go there, if you're asking me to hope, please don't raise my hopes. Because those kind of hopes come with wounds. 
and disappointments. And I don't know what kind of person you are. I think there tend to be two kinds of people when it comes to our dreams. There's those of us who like share our dreams. We tell them out loud. We tell everybody, um, you're like Jeff. Like he's going to, it's going to be the best Easter ever. It's going to be awesome. And you know, whether you believe it or not, it's going to be all right. That just happens for him. He dreams big and he tells, and then there's people who keep their dreams kind of close to their chest. We're almost afraid to say them because we couldn't deal with the hurt if we said it out loud and it never happened. A couple months ago, I got an email from um, American Ninja Warrior. You guys ever watch that TV show? It's our family's favorite TV show where they do the crazy obstacle course, feats of strength, hanging by their pinky over, you know, a lake and that kind of stuff. Well, I get this email from them. I'm like, this is weird. And it says, thank you very much for your application. We'll be getting back with you shortly. So I asked Jeff about this. I'm like, did our kids apply to American Ninja Warrior? What's the deal? He goes, oh, he goes, I was afraid if I put my pastor email that they wouldn't choose me because they knew I was a pastor. I said, baby, did you think there was any other reason that maybe they wouldn't choose you besides the fact that you were a pastor? He's like, no, are you kidding me? I can totally hang with those guys. I can do that. And if they pick me, I will be in the best shape of my life. And he absolutely believes he belongs on that show. I'm like, baby, and I want to be a reporter, but I don't send my resume to CNN, okay? Some of us share our dreams loud. Some of us we're too afraid of being hurt, and that's how the Shunammite woman was, and she was content. She wasn't like she sat around and was upset about what hadn't happened. She'd never had a son. She had a content heart, and out of that heart, she spoke, but that dream that she was afraid to open up, God decides, because of her contentment, to do the impossible for her, And ladies, I just want to encourage your heart this morning. I don't know how you feel. I don't know what dreams you have. I know there have been seasons in my life. Our seasons are kind of defined, right, by sleep and no sleep, depending on whether we have babies or not, (laughs) newborns in our home, by um, time for yourself and no time for yourself. You know, you, you have very defined seasons of life, sometimes by children, sometimes by a divorce you weren't expecting and you're back at work. And... Um, perhaps there are dreams in your heart that you feel like you've had to put on a shelf because of your season, and then time goes by, and after a while you think, you know, that dream's probably never going to happen. I just want to encourage you. He doesn't have to, and he doesn't always, but if God wants to, he can take your dream off the shelf in a moment. And he does for this woman. And I think he does because of her contentment. In a moment's notice, Elisha says, next year this time you're going to be holding a baby boy. And nine months later, she's holding a baby boy. Well, the child grows up. And one day, he goes out to be with his father in the field. Verse 18 says, the child grew. And now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And so the father tells the servant, hey, carry him to his mother. (laughs) Carry him to his mother. She's the merciful one. And he goes to his mother, and the mother holds the child on her lap until noon. And then he dies. 
And the mother does something very interesting in verse 21. She takes him up and lays him on the bed of the man of God, and she shuts the door on him and then goes out. And she calls to her husband and says, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. She never, ever says the child is dead. She never speaks that out loud. She just asks for a donkey, and her husband says, why are you going to the man of God? It's not, it's not a holy day or a Sabbath day. Why are you doing that? And she answers him three words that I am praying today will pierce your soul. She says, it is well. The word she uses actually means peace. Like, it may not be well today, but I have peace that it is gonna be well someday. It's also kind of a quick answer so that she doesn't have to go into all of her feelings just very quickly. It is well. It's kind of like we say it's all good. When we say it's all good, we don't mean it's all good, do we? No. That is our nice, polite, southern way of saying I'm not going to blow my head right here in front of you because your kid just spilled stuff all over my new carpet. It's all good. I'll never have that kid back to my house. So she says this, it's all good, it is well. And she gets on the donkey and she rides as fast as she can. And she's riding from her town in Shunem, which is over here, kind of on a hill. And she's going to where the man of God stays permanently, which is over here in Mount Carmel, up on a bigger hill. But in between, she has to ride across this huge valley. It is called the Valley of Jezreel. And there is no possible way that this woman could have known this at this time. But the Valley of Jezreel is the place where historians and theologians tell us that one day Jesus himself will come back and he will speak a word at the Battle of Armageddon and he will in one word of life, he will end all sorrow and pain and evil forever and usher in the kingdom of God. Now she could have never, ever, ever known that. But I just think, I just, I get so excited about God's word and these like ironies that are in there that he would know that we would know when we read her story, that her valley that she was in was going to be the exact place where he would someday provide deliverance for the whole world from pain and sorrow and death and evil. Ladies, sometimes your valley is the very place that God needs you to be. And it's the very place where he is going to prepare everything good that he has for your future. But while we're in that valley, if we're so caught up complaining and speaking death, we cannot see the other side. This woman rides across the valley, and when she gets close to the mountain, the man of God looks down, and he sees her coming because it's a big, wide-open valley, and he sends his servant down into the valley, and he says, ask her, what's wrong? Is it well with you? Is it well with your child? Is it, is it well with your husband? And the servant comes to her, and he asks her, and the woman says it again. Will you say it with me? It is well, she says. It's not well. Her child is dead. The child that she said, please don't open up that hope. It would hurt too much if something went wrong. 
But she says to the servant again, it is well. It's not okay, but I trust it's going to be okay. And then she runs to the man of God, and she falls at his feet. I don't know if the servant thinks she's being disrespectful or what, but he tries to move her out of the way. And the man of God says to her, no, no, don't move her. I can see that her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me, and he has not told me why. So she says to him, did I ask for a son, my Lord? Did I say, do not deceive me? She still has never spoken the words that her son is dead. And in verse 30, it says, the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives, a statement of life, and as your soul lives, another statement of life, I will not leave you. And immediately, Elisha gets up and follows her. When she speaks those words of life, it is more than just a positive outlook. She is speaking the very phrase that she knows is going to penetrate Elisha's heart, that she knows he's going to understand as a statement of faith, because there was a time in Elisha's life that he had a dream, one thing he wanted more than anything. He was supposed to be the successor to the greatest prophet ever, a guy named Elijah with a J. And I imagine he probably was a little bit worried about following a great leader. And the one thing he wanted more than anything, he asked God, God, please grant me a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. And God said to him that if you see Elijah when he leaves this earth, then you will be given that gift of a double portion. Well, several times Elijah was a busy man, and several times he was like, don't worry, Elisha, you don't need to come with me today. It's it's okay, I just got to run over here. And every time, three different times, Elisha says these exact words to Elijah, as surely as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And Elisha was granted this gift of a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So when she says those words, she knows. She's saying to him, you know what it's like to have a dream, Elisha. You know what it is like to have faith in that dream. And he gets up immediately and he follows her, but he's got to be thinking, all right, Elijah was about the only guy ever to raise somebody from the dead. It happened once. And I'm not certain if I can do that. He sends the servant on ahead. The servant can probably run faster. And the servant gets there and puts his staff on the boy and nothing happens. Elisha gets there and it says he shuts the door. I don't know why he shut the door. If he was afraid it wasn't going to work. I don't know if he just needed to pray extra hard to God. I'm not sure. He goes in and he lays on top of the child, eyes to eyes, mouth to mouth. It was the first mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, perhaps. Actually, he was copying what his mentor Elijah had done. And he does that, and the boy still does not come back to life. His body temperature grows warm, but nothing happens. And so Elisha gets up. He paces back and forth. He goes back to the room again, and he does it again, and he begs God to breathe life back into this boy. And this time, the scripture says that the boy sneezes seven times and wakes up. And Elisha calls for the Shunammite woman. And she comes in and she falls at his feet and she bows to the ground and then she picks up her son 
and goes out. Two women, both with very painful, difficult situations, both with the right to complain, both with the, the right to speak death because they had experienced death, one with a husband and one with a child. But they made very different choices. One of them said, my husband is dead. I have nothing. I need another. The other one says, it is well. And as surely as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I am not leaving. Ladies, I don't know where you might need to say that today. As surely as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I'm not leaving. It may not be okay, but I believe that it is going to be okay. And instead of complaining and whining, I don't know about you, but I am queen of whiners. I don't know. It's the one thing I wish I could change about myself. I guess I feel like if I, if I say it is well, then nobody's ever going to do anything about it. <laughs> Or nothing's ever going to change. But we have the power of life or death in our words. And we will reap either life or death based on our choices. There was a family in the 1800s, um, the, the Spafford family. The husband was a successful businessman and lawyer. He lived in Chicago. And if you know anything about the late 1800s in Chicago, there was a great fire that came through. Did you learn that in school? It's back there somewhere. Um, the great fire came through, and it destroyed most of their real estate property. They lost a lot. In that same season, they also lost a son. They had five children. They had four daughters and one son. And his wife was grieving, and he decided, you know, my wife needs a break. I'm going to put her on a boat with our four daughters, and I'm going to send her back to our family in Sweden and just let her have a little, a little break. Well, while the wife and the four daughters are on this boat on their way back to Europe, the boat is shipwrecked. The four daughters drowned, and the wife only is spared. It takes her nine days to get all the way onto Europe. She has nine days to think about what kind of words she is going to speak she sends a telegram back to her husband, and this is what she says. She says, saved alone, what shall I do? She didn't say, we've lost everything. She didn't say, the four girls are gone. She said, her very first word out of her mouth is, saved alone, what shall we do? So her husband gets on a boat, and he travels over to England to be with her. And while he's traveling across the ocean, the captain of the boat stops in the very place where his four daughters had drowned. And while he is there mourning their death, he writes one of the greatest songs ever given to us in history, a hymn you might remember called It Is Well. He says, It Is Well with my soul. He reunites with his wife and they are devastated and grieving and they decide, you know, I don't know what's left for us in this world. We're going to move to Jerusalem. We're just going to hope God comes back soon. We don't know if we can put up with any more in this life. 
And so they move to Jerusalem and they start to build or add on to this house that they acquire. They end up, the parents who lost all of their children, all five of them, they end up opening a children's hospital that throughout World War I and World War II took care of orphan children. It is still there today. You can go and visit it. And people, there's books you can order on Amazon. You can see the stories of people who say, you rescued my grandmother, you rescued my aunt. Because a family chose to speak life instead of death in their most difficult circumstances. Now, ladies, I don't know your story, not all of you. Some of you I know, and some of you, I'm just so proud of you for getting here this morning. But I want to give you a moment to ask God's Spirit to speak to you. The band is going to sing this song, It Is Well. And while they sing, I want you just to ask God, God, where is it that you want me to start saying, It Is Well? Where is it in my life that you want me to start speaking life, stop complaining, stop focusing on what I don't have and start saying it as well? Will you stand with me?